We are approaching the end of Matthew's Gospel, but the final chapters have slowed down the pace of the story of Jesus' establishment of the heavenly kingdom on earth. Chapters 21 to 27 focus our attention on the final week of Jesus' life, and the bulk of chapters 21 to 25 narrates the events and dialogue of the Tuesday of that week. Jesus' words recorded in Matthew chapter 23 spell the end of Jesus' public ministry. In chapter 23, Jesus addresses the crowds, his disciples in the crowds, and the scribes and Pharisees. And the focus is on judgment. In chapter 24, we'll see Jesus leave the temple for the final time, a moment of massive prophetic significance. And then he'll focus on teaching his disciples privately on the Mount of Olives about the coming judgment, his return, and what his followers are to expect in the meantime. So as Jesus closes out his public ministry, he directs words of judgment against his opponents in a climactic fashion. He's going to conclude this with an emotionally laden, emotionally loaded, poetically prophetic lament regarding the city of Jerusalem. Last week we heard Jesus address the crowds and his disciples together on Tuesday afternoon, warning them about the danger of following the leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now in verses 13 to 33, Jesus addresses the scribes and Pharisees directly with seven woes. The fact that there are seven is probably significant. Jesus is thereby illustrating their sevenfold judgment, with seven representing absolute completion. The way these woes are laid out, however, gives some indications that he intends them to also serve as warnings for his disciples. What is a woe oracle? Basically, it is the opposite of a beatitude. Thus, we see a contrast with the series of Beatitudes that opened the Sermon on the Mount. As we saw all the way back in chapter 5, a Beatitude is most closely equivalent to our English congratulations. The word is usually translated as blessed, but the Greek term is a word of assessment. It's basically looking at your circumstances and saying, congratulations, you're in a good spot, without necessarily commenting on how you got in that good spot. Woe is the opposite. It's to look at your circumstances and to say, bummer, you are in a really bad spot. And when Jesus says woe to you in these woe oracles, whether here in Jesus' words or in the Old Testament, they tend to then specify why exactly you're in that bad spot. And so Jesus is telling people, when he says woe to you, he's telling you that your life is a broken ruin fit for judgment. The way Matthew has arranged the teaching blocks of Jesus, we we read about the offer of congratulations to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And here at the end of Jesus's ministry, we read about Jesus's condemnation of those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but will instead be sentenced to hell. Jesus, like Old Testament prophets, delivers these woe oracles in public, right there in the temple, face-to-face with the scribes and the Pharisees, but also with the crowds and his disciples in the audience. The warning to the crowds and disciples is double-edged. 
First, his disciples could give in to the same kind of hypocrisy being condemned in this passage. And second, both his disciples and the rest of the crowds need to beware of continuing to follow the leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees. As commentator Dan Doriani writes, adoration of the wrong hero can be deadly, and Jesus tries to crush his generation's reverence for false leaders. These seven woes have a clear structure as well. The first six woes are three linked pairs. The first pair highlights how the Jewish leaders prevent people from entering the kingdom of heaven. The second pair highlights how they distorted the Mosaic law in their practice. And the third pair contrasts what they are on the outside versus what they are on the inside. Then the climactic seventh woe links these Jewish leaders with their ancestors in unified hostility against God's word and God's prophets. One more introductory comment and then we'll dive in. Over the years, many students of Scripture have been very uncomfortable with the way Jesus addresses these men. Some have described this section of Scripture as the most unchristian or unloveliest chapter in Matthew's Gospel. One commentator expresses this sentiment like this, In the woe speech of chapter 23, I stand as an interpreter next to the text in a state of shock, and I sometimes wish that this chapter did not stand in the Bible. Jesus is indeed gentle and lowly of heart, as he described himself in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. But that is not all he is. Toward his most hostile opponents, toward hypocrites who hate him, he is direct and harsh. And with his disciples in earshot, I think he wants to make sure that they recognize the seriousness of the Jewish leader's hypocrisy. To borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, note the kindness and the severity of your Savior. He is not raging out of control here. As John MacArthur describes, he uttered every syllable with absolute self-control, but with devastating intensity. So let's hear Jesus well today. The first woe features the shut door. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Regarding the word hypocrites, which will describe the scribes and Pharisees in six of the seven woes in this passage and has been used to describe them in other places earlier in Matthew's Gospel, I appreciate the words of Dan Doriani. He writes, In casual English, a hypocrite can be someone who says one thing but does another. All hypocrites are inconsistent, but not all inconsistent people are hypocrites. Humans are inconsistent due to weakness, fear, or forgetfulness. This is not what we see in these Jewish leaders. These woe oracles will paint a clear picture of what Jesus means by hypocrite. In this first woe oracle, Jesus condemns the scribes and Pharisees because they slam the door in the face of people who would otherwise enter Jesus' heavenly kingdom. Now, that's a figure of speech. What are they literally doing? Well, they're doing the opposite of what Peter and the rest of the disciples are supposed to be doing. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus spoke of giving Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Those keys represent the authority to open or close the doors of the kingdom of heaven. That authority is clearly extended to the church in Matthew 18. Thus, the church exercises the keys of the kingdom by preaching the gospel, 
and assessing people's response to the gospel. The doors are opened for those who believe the gospel. The doors are closed for those who reject or ignore the gospel. So what are the Jewish leaders doing? They are preaching the anti-gospel. They are saying things like, Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan. And the high priest himself, just a few days after this, early on Friday morning, will say, he has uttered blasphemy. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, will pronounce their verdict. He deserves death. Ultimately, they shut the door of the kingdom, refusing to go in and preventing others from, do, from going in themselves by personally rejecting Jesus' teaching and claims about himself, and also by teaching other people to do the same. This is an expression of their hypocrisy because they are claiming to speak for God in their rejection of Jesus. And they are claiming to reject Jesus for the greater good of the people. All the while, as the gospel writers make clear, they are motivated by greed, jealousy, and pride. Woe to those who lie about Jesus. Woe to those who seek to draw people away from believing in the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. The second woe features the doubly damned convert. Look at verse 15. If you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, we're not going to read verse 14. Those words are not present in the earliest Greek manuscripts of Matthew's Gospel. It's likely that a well-meaning scribe borrowed these words from Mark 12, 40. Condemnation of the scribes Jesus delivered in a different occasion. If you're reading a different Bible translation and you're looking for verse 14, it's probably down in a footnote. So let's look at the doubly damned convert in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The Pharisees wanted people to see things their way. They wanted followers. There is limited historical evidence that Pharisees had the equivalent of missionary journeys. It may be that Jesus intends this also as a rhetorical exaggeration vividly depicting the effort the scribes and Pharisees might go to in order to convince other people to agree with them, particularly in their perspective about Jesus. However, Jews did travel outside the land of Israel from time to time to convince Gentiles who had already come to worship Yahweh and take on certain forms of Jewish worship. They were sometimes called God-fearers. And Pharisees would go to great lengths to persuade them to become full Jews, particularly by, at least for the men, accepting circumcision. But I suspect Jesus uses the term proselyte figuratively here to refer to the Jews that the Pharisees persuade to reject Jesus. Traveling across land and sea, then, may figuratively represent the drastic measures that they will go to in order to persuade people to reject Jesus. For example, consider how they will seek to collect false witnesses to bring some kind of charge against Jesus that might stick in court. Understood this way, when scribes and Pharisees convert someone to their way of thinking about Jesus, he says, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus thus indicates that the scribes and Pharisees who do this are on their way to hell. The phrase child of hell is a Hebrew way of saying that someone is deserving of and destined for hell. 
Paul communicates a similar idea in Ephesians 2.3, where he describes all humanity as children of wrath, meaning children deserving of and destined for God's wrath. But more significantly, Jesus says that the people they convince are doubly sons of hell. Think about it. Many people heard Jesus' teaching for themselves and had to respond and draw their own conclusions based on their encounter with Jesus himself. But many others, particularly in Jerusalem, hadn't seen or heard Jesus directly. Instead, their first exposure to Jesus might have been from these trusted Jewish leaders, painting such an ugly, twisted picture of Jesus. And these scribes and Pharisees would have given plenty of reasons for people not to believe in Jesus. Thus, for them to believe in Jesus, all of those reasons would need to be overcome in their minds. In addition, there is also the tendency for students to surpass their teachers, especially in zealous traditions like Pharisaic Judaism. If they've been taught to reject Jesus, it's likely that many of them will double down on their rejection and hostility against Jesus. Woe to those who make disciples of themselves or turn people toward other gods. The third woe features the binding oaths. And this woe oracle is much longer than all the others. Look at verses 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, instead of referring to them as hypocrites here, Jesus describes the scribes and Pharisees as blind guides and blind fools. No Jesus meek and mild here. Because Israel had been entrusted with the Scriptures, the Jewish leaders considered themselves to be guides of the blind and instructors of the foolish. Jesus earlier called this into question. In Matthew 15, 14, we recall him saying, And if the blind lead the blind... Both will fall into a pit. John MacArthur writes, The scribes and Pharisees prided themselves in their superior religious knowledge and understanding, but they were blind leaders trying to lead blind Israel, and together they were doomed to judgment if they would not come to the light. Interestingly, Jesus here calls the Jewish leaders fools, the same word he prohibited his followers from using against each other back in Matthew 5, 22, where Jesus had said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is not using this word as a thoughtless insult, motivated by sinful anger. But instead, he is pronouncing a verdict on the sinful foolishness of the Jewish leaders. Here, Jesus illustrates their blindness and their foolishness by how they handle the matter of oaths. The scribes and Pharisees had developed elaborate procedures for swearing oaths in order to avoid using the name of God carelessly, but this led 
stemmed down a road that resulted in a double, double standard, whereby if you had worded your oath in certain ways, you could get out of keeping your oath. Jesus' explanation cuts through all this nonsense and expresses the fundamental truth about swearing oaths. They always involve God. God is always a witness to a person's oaths and vows. But this also means, as Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that swearing oaths is unnecessary in most cases. God will hold people accountable for their words, including their oaths, vows, and promises. The scribes and Pharisees are blind to this truth. If you don't or can't keep your oaths, vows, or promises, repent and receive God's forgiveness. But the best practice is to simply speak the plain truth all the time. Make reasonable commitments. Seek to keep them diligently and ask for forgiveness when you fail. Woe to cheaters who seek to avoid accountability. Woe to those who use their words to manipulate and deceive. The fourth woe features the hypocritical tithe. Look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The legislation regarding tithing in the Mosaic Law is elaborate and relatively complicated, and Jewish tradition has grown up beyond what is written in the Scriptures to develop a relatively large section in the Mishnah explaining how tithing should work for the Jews. The biblical purpose behind tithing in the Mosaic Law was to provide for the priests and the Levites who were not permitted to own their own land as well as to enable poor Jews to participate in some of the Jewish festivals. In this sense, tithing should be viewed as a form of taxation prescribed for the nation of Israel. A good summary is provided by commentator Grant Osborne. I'll quote him for the details. God's people are to tithe grain, wine, oil, fruit, and the first harvests of herds and flocks every tenth animal, with each family consuming the tithe in a sacred meal shared with the Levites. Moreover, tithes were to go to the Levites as their inheritance, and they in turn would return to the Lord a tenth of that for the priests. Every third year, the tithes were stored up not only for the Levites, but also for the orphans and widows. It has been estimated that the actual amount given in tithes was 17 to 20 percent of the farmer's income. Out of all of this, Jesus highlights how the scribes and Pharisees tithe tiny garden herbs, which are not clearly specified in the Mosaic Law. There is debate about whether or not tithing the three herbs mentioned is truly required in the Mosaic Law. But notice that Jesus affirms the practice. It may be that Jesus is affirming them for doing so as a matter of conscience. While the Mosaic Law doesn't require that the Jews tithe these herbs, if particular Jews wish to do so, then they are free to do so. But their hypocrisy is seen in how their tithing seems to come at the neglect of what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. Interestingly, and don't miss this, Jesus here claims that he has the right to define what the weightier matters of the law actually are. As in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's, but I say to you, trumps all other considerations. 
he specifies three matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, as most of our English translations have them. This trio certainly features in various ways throughout the Old Testament. It's possible that Jesus has in mind Micah 6.8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly with God is a picture of a faithful, personal relationship with God. However, that word translated faithfulness in Matthew 23, 23, every other time it appears in Matthew's gospel, it's translated as faith. And it may have that meaning here as well. So how were the scribes and Pharisees not attending to these weightier matters of the law? Biblical justice has to do with the protection of the vulnerable. While they may give money to the poor, the scribes and Pharisees don't really care about protecting the vulnerable within Israel. Instead, as we looked at last week, they load people down with burdens and refuse to help them when they struggle to carry them. Likewise, they certainly don't exude mercy. They hold people accountable to standards they themselves don't keep. Their priority in life was not alleviating other people's suffering. And if Jesus means faith in the sense of believing God's word, ultimately they are refusing to believe in Jesus. Or, if Jesus means faithfulness in their relationship with God, they are proving themselves to be the epitome of Jesus' adulterous generation, since they refuse to love and trust Jesus, the one whom God has sent to save them. Who cares if they're tithing scrupulously? God certainly doesn't. Before looking at Jesus' famous proverbial punchline in verse 24, I should probably say a brief word about the question of tithing for Christians. I agree with John MacArthur's summary. He writes, At no time in the New Testament is tithing mentioned as binding on the church or even recommended as the standard for Christian giving. This is easy to understand if one recognizes that tithes were a form of taxation to support the national life of Israel. Now, look at verse 24 again. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Both the gnat... And the camel are unclean for the Jews, according to the Mosaic law. Straining out a gnat refers to the practice of running wine through a sieve for the precise purpose of straining out small, unclean insects that might be in the wine, which would contaminate the wine. This is equivalent to their scrupulous tithing of garden herbs. But then swallowing a camel, Jesus is using hilarious hyperbole here, painting a ridiculous picture to make his point. Their neglect of justice, mercy, and faith is akin to gulping down the largest unclean animal listed in Leviticus 11. Woe to those who major on the minors of religious performance while ignoring the greatest commandments in the law. The fifth woe features the external cleansing. Look at verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Jesus paints a vivid picture. Imagine a blind man washing dishes. Again, Jesus is using figurative language to describe the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. They are known for their emphasis on washing rituals. We saw some of this back in Matthew 15. When scribes and Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands before eating. 
Here, Jesus is not concerned to criticize their literal hand-washing practices. He says they fail to wash the inside of their lives, which are full of greed and self-indulgence. Luke describes the Pharisees as lovers of money in Luke 16, 14. John MacArthur correctly points out that the Greek word translated self-indulgence here carries the basic meaning of lack of self-control and was often used to denote unrestrained self-gratification. This word appears in 2 Timothy 3.3 as a characteristic of people living in the last days. And one Greek dictionary observes that, quote, it is not so much that they lead a dissolute life, but rather that they cannot control themselves, and so they no longer act as human beings. Jesus is portraying the Jewish leaders here as exploiters of other people and even as abusive wild animals. He insists that these Jewish leaders need to clean the inside. That is, they need to repent. Genuine repentance starts in the heart with a genuine change of mind about one's sin and then flows out into a change of behavior. The scribes and Pharisees focus on making sure they appear clean and appear righteous without addressing their hearts before the Lord. Woe to hypocrites who wear masks. Woe to those who manipulate others and deceive them as they take advantage of them for their own selfish gain. Woe to all abusers. The sixth woe features the whitewashed tombs. Look at verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Another figure of speech, this time an analogy or comparison. White paint was applied to tombs all around Jerusalem in the weeks leading up to Passover. This was to mark them clearly so that travelers wouldn't accidentally brush up against them or walk on top of them and thereby be rendered unclean, which would mean they couldn't participate in the celebrations in Jerusalem. Jesus says that the scribes and Pharisees have likewise painted themselves white, not to keep people away, but to draw people to themselves. Ironically, they have the same negative impact on people who follow them as those who touch the tombs. For all of their scrupulosity, as we observed last week, putting a fence around the law actually prevented the people who followed them from truly obeying God's commandments. Therefore, those who follow the scribes and Pharisees end up being rendered unclean before God. The scribes and Pharisees are actually unclean because their hearts are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The experts of the Mosaic law are lawless. They are rebels against God, the lawgiver, and their hypocritical lawlessness ends up contaminating those who listen to them. Woe to those who work so hard to appear righteous while truly they are dead men walking. The final seventh climactic woe describes the scribes and Pharisees as the prophet killers. Look at verses 29 to 33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, 
You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The Pharisees were known for dedicating memorials to righteous people from the Old Testament. They'd also embellished the tombs of folks like King David with decorations and plaques. Jesus exposes this act as further hypocrisy. Their monument building is an act outwardly expressing their love and devotion to the memories of the righteous saints of the Old Testament. These acts express their claim that they wouldn't have murdered the prophets who were often opposed with hostility by wicked Jewish leaders. But it was their fathers, their ancestors, who murdered the prophets. And Jesus sees this relation as going beyond bloodline. The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day are not only descendants of wicked kings like Ahab, who in cahoots with evil Jezebel murdered many of God's prophets, they are also wicked and murderous themselves, like father, like son. In verse 32, Jesus issues an ironic command, reminiscent of many ironic commands in the Old Testament prophets. He commands them to fill up the measuring cup belonging to their ancestors. This reflects the Old Testament idea of God allowing sin to continue up to a certain point before He responds with wrath and judgment. Recall Genesis 15, 16, where the Lord explains to Abram why four generations would pass until Abram's descendants would return to the promised land. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The nation of Israel was to be the Lord's agent of judgment against the Amorites and the rest of the Canaanites. But the Lord would wait until their sin and guilt had increased to a certain fullness that only the Lord knows. Thus, Jesus is telling the scribes and Pharisees two things. First, the murderous tendencies of their ancestors had not yet been punished as they deserved. The cup was not yet full to the brim. Secondly, Jesus is telling them that they would add their own murders to that same cup, and then they would be the ones to fill the cup, and therefore God is going to unleash His wrath against them. He'll say more about that in the next verses. But before he gets there, he adds one more insult in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He calls the scribes and Pharisees snakes, and then he calls them offspring of vipers. John MacArthur elaborates on the significance of the advance from serpents to vipers. Vipers were small poisonous snakes that lived primarily in the desert regions of Palestine and other parts of the eastern Mediterranean. Because they looked like a dried twig when they were still, a person collecting wood for a fire would often pick one up inadvertently and be bitten. Vipers, therefore, had the understandable reputation for being both deadly and deceitful. That's the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. And then Jesus' rhetorical question, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell, means they won't escape. Associating them with serpents means they are children of Satan. And Jesus will later describe hell as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan belongs in hell, and he will be confined there eternally on judgment day. And these scribes and Pharisees belong right there with him. 
The seventh woe concludes with this pronouncement of eternal condemnation against the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jesus isn't done, however. He follows the seven woes with an oracle of doom. Look at verses 34 to 36. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Hold on tight, folks. If you thought Jesus was intense in the seven woes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Note the word, therefore. It's important and troubling. This is how Jesus is going to facilitate the scribes and Pharisees' obedience to his ironic command. He just told them to fill up the measure of their fathers. Therefore, Jesus is going to send them his disciples, who will preach like prophets give counsel as wise men, and teach the Scriptures like the scribes were supposed to, in line with Jesus' own understanding of Scripture, calling the Jewish leaders and everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. This sending is the Great Commission. In the Old Testament, only God sends prophets. Jesus is God, so He can do that too. And how will the Jewish leaders respond? Just like their ancestors responded to the prophets persecution, opposition, rejection, and murder. And because of this response, verse 35 says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Jesus' intention in sending his messengers to the Jewish leaders, knowing that his messengers would be rejected, opposed, persecuted, and even murdered, was for the purpose of having all the righteous blood shed on earth to come on these Jewish leaders. In light of passages like this in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, you can note that and look at it later if you want to catch the context there, John MacArthur rightly observes that the New Testament makes abundantly clear that the purpose of the gospel is not always to bring salvation. It has the equally divine purpose of bringing judgment. When men receive God's Son and are saved... He is glorified because His grace is vindicated. And when they refuse His Son and are condemned, He is glorified because His holiness is vindicated. Jesus specifies the range of righteous martyrs He's making the Jewish leaders of His day responsible for. He refers to all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. This range is pretty much all of Old Testament history, but more importantly, it ranges all of Old Testament Scripture. Jesus' Hebrew Bible has the first book as Genesis and the last book as Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles 24, 20-22, we are told of a Zechariah who was murdered in the courts of the temple. This is not primarily chronological, it is canonical. Chronologically, the final prophet murdered, according to Old Testament Scripture, was named Uriah, whose murder is described in Jeremiah 26, verses 20 to 23, and occurred sometime after 609 B.C. Zechariah lived and died more than 200 years earlier. Notice that Jesus makes the Jewish leaders he's speaking to responsible for the murder of Zechariah. 
who was murdered several hundred years before they were born. The phrase, the blood of righteous Abel, is interesting. Jesus is likely drawing on the book of Lamentations, the only place in the Old Testament where the unique phrase, the blood of the righteous, occurs. In Lamentations 4.13, the poet, probably Jeremiah, speaks of the reason Jerusalem and Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. In the rest of Matthew's gospel, there will be several references to Jesus as the righteous one whose blood is being shed on the cross. And Matthew is likely drawing on the language of Lamentations to show that the murder of righteous Jesus is the ultimate reason Jerusalem and Herod's temple will be destroyed by the Romans. Here, Jesus, like Jeremiah in Lamentations, is announcing the condemnation of the Jewish leadership, specifically because of shedding righteous blood. And he is about to state clearly that Jerusalem and the temple are to be destroyed. The scribes and Pharisees are going to be held, in some sense, personally accountable for all the murders of God's righteous people, from Abel to Zechariah. How is this appropriate? How is this fair? The biblical concept of corporate solidarity is important to keep in mind. Yes, individuals are responsible for their own sin. And those individuals, Cain, who murdered Abel, and King Joash, who murdered Zechariah, both experienced a measure of God's judgment in their lives. But both Cain and King Joash were part of a larger group of murderous people. The Apostle John characterizes Cain... As, the evil, as of the evil one, an offspring of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and thus the first in a long line of sons of the evil one. And in an earlier conversation with a group of these Jewish leaders, in John 8, 44, Jesus identified them as the offspring of the devil. Likewise, King Joash was one in a long line of wicked kings of Judah. For Jesus to say to the scribes and Pharisees listening to him on this particular Tuesday... You murdered Zechariah between the sanctuary and the altar. He considers them to be just like King Joash in their wickedness. As Jesus himself embodied and acted out certain, certain, certain positive aspects of Israel's history in his own life and experience, as Matthew's gospel has been at pains to show, so also these Jewish leaders in their opposition against Jesus are embodying and acting out certain negative aspects of Israel's history in their own experience. They are going to fill up the measure of their murderous ancestors by murdering Jesus and then murdering his followers when they come preaching the gospel to them. Jesus concludes his direct address to the scribes and Pharisees in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The phrase, this generation, appears five times in Matthew's gospel, and it seems quite clear that in every case, it refers to the Jewish people being addressed by Jesus. A generation was generally considered about 40 years. Thus, Jesus' prophecy will be fulfilled within 40 years. Historically, we know Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' words here. But... This generation is not limited to the Jewish leadership. Jesus here broadens out the judgment to include the Jewish people at large. The leaders represent the people. 
and the people follow their leaders. And we'll see the people's role in calling for Jesus' crucifixion just three days after these words were spoken. And if you still think this is unfair, Matthew will correct your offended sense of fairness in 27, 25. Chapter 27, verse 25, where we read, And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. The Jewish people asked for, volunteered to take credit for, to be held responsible for the death of Jesus. Jesus' oracle of doom announces God's judgment against the Jewish leaders and the Jews as a whole. And that judgment will take on an already but not yet shape, as he has in view the historical judgment of the military destruction of the city, slaughtering thousands of Jewish people and the destruction of the temple. But Jesus also has in view, as he mentioned explicitly in verse 33, the eternal condemnation these Jews who reject Jesus will face on Judgment Day when they are all imprisoned permanently in hell. But Jesus' final words in the temple, his last recorded public words to Israel, are a prophetic lament over Jerusalem where the city itself is designated as the prophet killer. Look at verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The double address, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, reflects an idiomatic way of expressing deep affection for someone in the ancient world. This is not the first time Jesus has expressed a similar lament over the city. We read similar words in Luke 13, 34, and 35, which is surely describing an earlier occasion. In these verses, we see Jesus' will set against the Jewish leader's collective will. What Jesus wants versus what the scribes and Pharisees want. Jesus compares himself with a mother hen seeking to protect her chicks. New Testament scholar Tom Wright illustrates the beauty of Jesus' imagery. He writes, There have been recorded instances of a mother hen faced with a fire, collecting her young chickens under her wings to keep them safe. Sometimes she is successful. When the fire has done its worst and died down, you may find a dead hen with live chicks underneath its wings. The fires of judgment are coming against Jerusalem. Jesus wants to protect the inhabitants of the city, your children, by calling them to believe in him and follow him. But he has met resistance from the leaders. The you switches to plural at the end of verse 37, targeting the leaders yet again. This is parallel to the first of the seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. They slam the door of the kingdom. They oppose the preaching and the ministry of Jesus, whereby he seeks to carry people out of the burning building. So Jesus pronounces the judgment yet again in verse 38, addressing the scribes and Pharisees. Your house is left to you desolate. In two verses, chapter 24, verse 1, we will read about Jesus leaving the temple for the last time. 
Here, Jesus characterizes the temple as your house, not God's house. And if he abandons that house, then God's presence has abandoned the temple, and it is left to be destroyed. Verse 39 is the most difficult to understand in this passage, in my opinion. I think he's likely addressing the Jewish leaders directly still with the plural yous, but What does he mean by saying, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? The promise that the Jewish leaders won't see him again can't be taken precisely literally, from this moment at least, because they'll see him again on Friday. But perhaps he means after his death, or perhaps he's not speaking of seeing him physically or literally. After all, he's been referring to these Jewish leaders as blind men repeatedly throughout this passage, and their blindness was not literal or physical. Also, the Greek phrase translated again more literally could be translated as from now on, as it's translated in the New American Standard Bible. Jesus is going to say something similar but seemingly contradictory directly to the high priest and the whole council of leaders. In Matthew 26, 64, In response to the high priest demanding to know whether he claims to be the Messiah, Jesus will say, you have said so. That's a singular you, addressing the high high priest directly. But I tell you, that's a plural you, switching to the Jewish leadership in the room. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, in Matthew 23, 39, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, from now on, you will not see me. But in Matthew 26, 64, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, from now on you will see me. We'll look at more detail, Jesus' words to the high priest when we get to that passage. But I'll go ahead and summarize what I believe Jesus means there. I don't think Jesus is saying that the Jewish leaders will literally see him seated at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. Instead, the Jewish leaders will see the effects of that reality. What will they literally see? They will literally see Jerusalem besieged by armies, Jews slaughtered by the thousands, and the temple burned and flattened. That should be evidence that they can see with their eyeballs that Jesus, whom they sentenced to death on a cross, was telling the truth all along and really is the Messiah and is seated at the right hand of God. But in our passage, in Matthew 23, 39, I think Jesus is reiterating the doom of Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership. When Jesus adds his until, I'm not sure he primarily has in mind a time frame. Many students of Scripture view this statement as holding out hope for the Jewish leaders to repent at some point in the future. Some, therefore, connect this with Paul's promise in Romans 11:26 that all Israel will be saved viewing the fulfillment of that as a mass conversion of Jews just before Jesus' second coming, when they will truly sing the words of Psalm 118, 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, genuinely praising and welcoming Jesus as the Messiah. However, the biggest problem I see with that interpretation is the you in verse 39. Jesus is clearly addressing the Jewish leaders he's talking to. So another way to understand this, which I believe makes better sense of what Jesus is saying, is to take the until as expressing a condition that the Jewish leaders must fulfill in order for them to properly see Jesus. Thus, he's warning the Jewish leaders one final time 
paraphrasing with some language borrowed from the Apostle Paul, you've seen the Savior of Israel, and you've rejected His way of salvation. The only way you can be saved from your deserved condemnation is if you welcome me, Jesus, as the true Messiah, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. When you do that, then you can see and receive salvation and be spared from God's wrath. And if you don't, you won't. And we know from the book of Acts that many priests will, in fact, believe the gospel and thereby be rescued from the coming judgment. That's the message for us today as well. As Jesus said throughout his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your sin in repentance and turn toward Jesus in faith. Believe that he died on the cross, condemned in your place, paying the penalty for your sin. Believe that he rose from the dead and that he now reigns, the rightful king of the universe. Submit your life to him and commit to obey him in the company of his people. Jesus saves sinners. But those who refuse to repent, those who reject Jesus' gracious ardor, offer a pardon for all sin, will bear the guilt, all of it. The woes will be fulfilled against all who remain in rebellion against Him. Trust Him and escape the judgment you deserve. You can escape being sentenced to hell. Said better, you can be rescued from being sentenced to hell. Look to Jesus, the Son of God, who saves sinners from the wrath of God by giving His life on the cross to endure the wrath of God in our place. Whoever believes in Him will not perish. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard to hear harsh words from our Savior. It's hard to hear words of judgment. It's hard to hear words of warning. Would you help us to receive these words in the way that they're intended? Words that could persuade us to see Jesus as He really is and to cling to Him for life, for eternal life. There is no other hope in this world. Would you draw us together in seeing Jesus really clearly? He truly is seated at your right hand, reigning and ruling, and we await for His soon return. And we pray, Father, that you would help us, your people, remain faithful until that day. Help us to wait expectantly, patiently, and busily. And we pray for those who, who don't know you, who aren't one of your children. We pray that you would turn their hearts toward you. We pray that you would work in their hearts to draw them to believe this same gospel and to escape this condemnation. It is terrible to think of people we know, people we love, being punished for their rebellion forever. But we glorify your justice as well as your mercy, and we thank you for satisfying both on the cross. Do your great work to save sinners. Help us to be faithful in preaching the gospel. Help us to be faithful in speaking well of Jesus in all of our relationships and in all the opportunities you provide. We thank you for being with us through your spirit to equip us for that task and to equip us for the faithfulness that is required to endure to the last day. Thank you for your presence with us. Emmanuel.
and better than Emmanuel. We love you. We worship you because you've loved us so richly and you're worthy of all worship. In Jesus' name.